because I'm kind of a misanthrope by nature. Misanthrope by nature. Yes. We have this in common. My favorite people hate people. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As long as you can hate people in a lighthearted kind of way. Lighthearted misanthropy. I like it. Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics and neglected issues in bioethics, healthcare, medicine, and society. Basically anything that we, your hosts, find interesting. I'm Tyler Gibb in beautiful Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm Devin Stahl in the slightly less beautiful Waco, Texas. Hey, wait a minute, Tyler. Did you mess with my script? Tyler, do you ever think about things you want to accomplish before you kick the bucket? Do you have a kind of bucket list of either professional or personal accomplishments that are important to you or that would be dream worthy to happen in your lifetime? Bucket list, huh? Mm -hmm. I think I do. There are places I wanna go and see, like travel bucket lists. I think there are bucket lists as far as like my professional life. Like I'd like to finish writing a book there are certain places that I would like to publish maybe that are pretty prestigious. Ooh, like New England Journal of Medicine or what kinds of places? Yeah, New England Journal of Medicine, science, nature. Obviously, nothing that I do would be worthy of being published in science or nature. But, <laughs> um, so I think about I think about those types of things. Sometimes I think about being published in or like, you know, being interviewed by different people like having something in the New York Times, for example, or the New Yorker. When I was in graduate school, I wrote a couple of short stories and I sent them to the New Yorker thinking, oh boy, getting something published in the New Yorker would be, especially a fiction piece. That'd be so cool. That's what I think about. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, of course, there's the academic kind of stuff. And I actually, not to toot my own horn, but did get something published in Nature review clinical oncology, (laughs) which is one of the branches of nature. So that's pretty cool. So I highlight that on my CV, of course, like, look at that. Is it like one of those animations that come in text messages, like congratulations or like balloons, like pop and stuff when you open it? Right. It has a sound effect that goes with it when you open my CV. (laughs) (laughs) But I think more so than that, it's I think what you said about being interviewed on popular media. I don't know. That's just so cool. I listen to a lot of NPR. And so we were joking that like to be interviewed on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or Terry Gross, that would be just so cool to have your message get out to that kind of audience. Right. Yeah. So I I used to listen to Diane Rehm a lot. She's retired now, but I always thought that would be cool. But Fresh Air, that show being interviewed by Terry Gross, who's I, I would argue is one of the best interviewers like in, you know, in the country or in the business right now. She's amazing. But what's interesting or what's what's exciting about this episode is that our guest has actually been interviewed on Fresh Air by Terry Gross. Yeah, a legit bioethicist who has written a very public facing book for people who are thinking about the opioid epidemic or thinking about pain and addiction. He wrote a book to a more popular audience, which is amazing. It got really good traction. And then he got to be interviewed by Terry Gross. That's like my dream. So Terry Gross, if you're listening, please interview me. Tyler, I I, I mean, sure, he's fine, but interview me. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. All right.
welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Today, we are pleased to have with us Travis Reeder. He is the Assistant Director for Education Initiatives, Director of the Master of Bioethics Program, and Research Scholar at the Berman Institute of Bioethics. He's also affiliate faculty at the Center for Public Health Advocacy, Philosophy, Health Policy and Management with Johns Hopkins. Welcome, Travis. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Absolutely. We invited you on uh, because I think of you as the expert, the bioethics expert on the opioid epidemic. Is that fair? Wow. I mean, that's <laughs> uh, a lot of pressure. I, I suppose if you make the niche small enough, then maybe you can kind of uh, toot your own horn that way. But yeah, there are not that many bioethicists working in this space. And so I think that there are uh, several colleagues who are working on problems uh, adjacent to the ones that I'm working on and kind of making up this field that is broadly the intersection of pain, opioids, opioids because they uh, treat pain, but then also opioids because they can cause addiction and contribute to an overdose public health problem. And so that kind of bleeds into this broader crisis that we're experiencing in America today. So by the time you get that whole spiel out, kind of pain, opioids, drugs, addiction, and an overdose epidemic, it's actually quite a big space and I am probably one of the only people who's trying to get a handle on the bioethics and health policy of all of that. But I have a lot of very smart colleagues who are chipping off different pieces for sure. So Travis, how did you get interested in this topic? Uh, entirely, you know, self-centeredly. I had my foot blown apart in 2015 in a motorcycle accident. So uh, prior to that, I was working on climate change ethics and food and agriculture and planetary limits and overpopulation. Uh, so I had not thought about drugs at all. I didn't know anything about opioids. And then in the wake of this motorcycle accident, I had some failures of pain management and experienced opioid physical dependence and really terrible withdrawal and kind of went through this traumatic experience in the wake of which some very kind and smart colleagues who I eventually shared my story with said, huh, you're a bioethicist. Do you think you might have anything to say about these kind of gaps in healthcare that you identified? So this started for very introspective, self-serving reasons. And that was in 2015 was the accident. And so as I dug deeper, I found more to explore. And it's just, it's become my life now. It's what I do. And I will say your accounts of this are incredibly compelling. I'm glad that you were vulnerable enough to share them in print. And so we want to plug on the website, we'll have links to your book and your many articles about this, but I hope people take a chance to just read your personal account because it's both incredibly harrowing and also frustrating. I was so mad on your behalf about all the things that happened to you and all the ways that medicine failed you and that your physicians weren't there to take care of you once you were trying to get off the opioids. It's just an incredibly compelling story. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I mean, so, and so what you find in my book, which didn't come out until 2019. So, you know, there's this four years of, of exploring and learning. So again, I wasn't an expert in this topic, you know, in 2015, um, was I, I kind of started with this very self-centered perspective of, I had this terrible experience of having my opioids mismanaged and it caused a lot of suffering, caused a lot of trauma. And then when I started exploring it as a scholar, when I got enough distance to kind of think, oh, this could be important, this could be interesting, I wonder if I could help people, the questions just exploded, right? And so it started out very much the, you know, 
oh, no one knew how to manage my withdrawal after they prescribed medications that cause withdrawal. That seems like a bioethics problem to all of a sudden, boy, we're bad at drugs, right? We're, we're bad at treating pain. We're bad at using opioids. We're not only opioids, we're bad at treating all drugs, illicit and pharmaceutical. We're in the middle of an overdose crisis in America. Holy cow, these questions are ripe for bioethics and health policy. Um, and it turns out that's one way to find a research program. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard some people, Travis, say, you know, it's complicated, but at the end of the day, it's not so hard. Maybe there's some bioethics questions here, but ultimately this is a public health problem. It's about overprescribing. So physicians were just not being responsible enough and drug users were not being responsible enough. And if we could just prescribe better and if we could maybe figure out how to get, you know, people off their medication in a simpler, more effective way, that would solve this problem. But I take it that you think there actually might be some more challenging bioethics questions present in the opioid epidemic. Yes, you take correctly. There's a very seductive story, right? So the important part is how do you frame the problem? So if the problem is framed as the opioid crisis, and we'll put little scare quotes around that because it's no longer an opioid crisis, it's a polydrug overdose public health crisis. But we use this language for a long time, so it's in the public imagination. So if the problem is the opioid crisis, then your question is how do you solve it? And there's this really seductive answer, because if you look to recent history, and in fact, even less recent history, we caused, it looks like, this drug overdose crisis starring opioids. Uh, we kind of kickstarted it with overprescribing of pharmaceutical opioids. So that's the way it looks. We had a pretty steady drug use addiction and overdose rate for quite a while uh, in the 20th century. And then in the 1990s, a whole bunch of things happened. I dive into the history in my book and lots of other people have told it as well, but the kind of Purdue Pharma meets a lot of well-meaning pain advocacy to try to better take care of people's pain. And now you, you get told as physicians, as patients by pharmaceutical companies, opioids are safe and effective now. This drug that used to be scared to use so you use them for everything as so you get this kind of mantra of the pill for every pain. So we get the pill for every pain, opioid prescribing quadruples between 1999 and 2010. And during that exact same time, overdose rates from prescription opioids quadruple. So lockstep, 400% increased in both of them. And so you see that. And if you are, say, Tom Frieden, who at the time is the CDC director, if you are a politician, if you're a policymaker, the story looks seductively simple. Overprescribing causes the crisis. So what would solve it? Stop overprescribing. And that makes it sound like there's not a very interesting bioethical issue here. We made a mistake. We use a drug to uh, profligately right hold out your hands, give pills to everybody. Um, and so stop, stop that, right? But what we've learned in the meantime is that it's very different to stop using medication than to start using it. And telling physicians, hey, don't use opioids because they're dangerous, isn't great health policy, right? So then you might encounter what we're encountering now, which is physicians being too afraid to use one of these tools in their toolbox, uh, that is opioid medication. So yes, the question is much more complicated, but it looks like if the cause was oversupply, the solution should be supply reduction. How much does this interact with, I don't remember the years, maybe you know, you have this off the top of your head, but the, there was a point in which pain became a vital sign that healthcare providers always asked about. And we got the pain scale from the grumpy face to the happy face for 
identifying, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how much pain are you in? Is there a correlation between pain becoming something that we, that healthcare providers are asking about routinely and them taking that information and trying to fix it in some way? And it just became this opioid prescription issue. Absolutely. So what I said in my last answer, that there were lots of forces that came together in the 1990s, this was one of them. And so the slightly longer version of that story is we had actually been under treating pain for a long time, uh, especially in America, because we were very afraid of opioids. Interestingly, because 100 years prior, they had caused another overdose epidemic uh, with, with heroin and morphine. For a long time, for years slash decades, we had been underutilizing pain medication, even for patients dying of end-stage cancer. We were just really badly using this tool in our toolkit. So lots of well-meaning pain advocacy. Uh, you get the advent of the palliative care field. You get really important people like Kathleen Foley saying failure to treat pain constitutes torture by omission. It becomes a kind of rallying cry of the pain advocacy movement. So this idea that pain is the fifth vital sign shows up in the very end of the 20th century. So I think it was actually coined in 1998, 1999 by a physician at Johns Hopkins in a presidential address. And he comes up with this idea of pain is the fifth vital sign as a tool for getting physicians to take pain more seriously. So you have to actually ask your patients about what sort of pain they're in. The immediate problem was that once that became accepted, well, if you're a clinician and you're asking a patient about their pain and they give you a high number, well, now you feel like you're obligated to do something about it. And this is the same time that pharma is telling us that opioids are safe and effective. So now you've got pain that you know about and a tool that is safe and effective to use to alleviate it. And so now we even get things like hospitals being graded on how effectively they treat their patients' pain, reimbursements tied to this, et cetera, et cetera. So we get pain as a fifth vital sign, either being officially or informally used in almost every, every hospital in the country through the combination of JCO adopting it and the VA system adopting it. So between that, those two things happening, basically every hospital is really aggressively trying to make sure patients leave with their pain treated. So again, all that for the good, but we overcorrected from not taking pain seriously to, well, if we've got a tool that can use it, and we've been told that it's safe and effective, which we didn't have good evidence for, now we just throw it at everybody to keep our scores low, keep our reimbursement rates high. Well, so Travis, do you think that there are villains in this story? I mean, we've seen a lot on the news lately about the Sackler family misrepresenting some of the information about safety with these drugs. Can we blame them? Are we blaming physicians? Are we blaming the whole system which incentivized this? I mean, we like villains and heroes, right? So first I'll ask you about the villains and then I'll ask you about the solutions. But is it easy enough to figure out who's to blame for this? This is such a hard question. I honestly wrestle with this a lot and I'll tell you why. So on the one hand, of course there are villains. There are really bad actors. So if you want to get a handle on how bad some of the actors are, read Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire of Pain. It's an unbelievable journalistic investigation into the Sacklers. And on the one hand, I think that's important. It's important to know when there are bad players. It's important to think in our construction of the systems of the future, how we think the FDA should operate, how we think the DEA should operate. Like we need to know these facts. On the other hand, 
I'm very uncomfortable with how how gratifying it is to blame and quote unquote hold accountable a company or a family, so Purdue or the Sacklers. So right now, you know, it's all in the news because the Sacklers are are finally wrapping up this, you know, years long set of lawsuits and there's not much accountability anyway for them. It turns out they're going to still walk away with with billions and billions of dollars with being one of the wealthiest families in the country. But them paying billions of dollars, everybody knowing that the Sacklers played this role, various prominent members of the family, everyone knowing that Purdue Pharma was a bad player, makes people feel really good. It's a little too easy to just kind of rub your hands together and say, well, I'm glad we figured that one out. And it's, it's not a scapegoat because they did wrong things, but it, it lets us off the moral hook. And so here's the dirty secret that I want to make sure, like, here's the bold in the text of the thesis. Suing pharma doesn't solve the opioid crisis. What? I know, right? It's crazy. Um, and so if we bloodlet, right, if we, if we kind of take that as the thing that gives us our, you know, satisfaction, we don't recognize, one, that the money the Sacklers are going to pay, which isn't largely coming from them, it's coming from their company becoming a public trust, et cetera. But those billions of dollars drop in the bucket. So what's it going to take to turn around the overdose epidemic? Something like $100 billion in the first five years, and then a commitment to steady funding for the long term. So we've never done anything approaching this scale. Uh, Elizabeth Warren put, put forward um, legislation that was never going to go through, but, but that actually showed what it would take. Uh, and it's about $100 billion. It's a well-accepted number for the first five to 10 years. So it's not only not going to solve it because is backwards looking, right? Holding people accountable doesn't change structures, uh, doesn't commit to kind of forward looking promotion of health, but it also just isn't anything like enough money to do what we need it to do. Hold bad players accountable just because justice is important, right? So that part should just be done for good reasons. But now let's focus on solving the overdose crisis, which has very, very little to do with holding pharma accountable. What I'm hearing is that you have a really good solution to solving the problem. So besides $100 billion, which would make a dent for sure, what would we even use that money for? Lay out the plan, I'll pitch it to Biden, and I think we're good to go. Oh man, this is great, I get the inside track. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this is not state secrets, right? Like most of the people who are doing the best work in health policy have some good idea of how this should be done. Now, to be clear, like here's the first bioethics question, $100 billion, how do you allocate it? So now we have a, a resource, limited resource allocation question. And so one of the first things to know is, uh, go back to my story about how, our, how we're seduced by the simple solution to the opioid crisis. A lot of people wanna spend a big chunk of that on supply reduction. So you focus on where did the drug supply come from? Two sources, licit and illicit. So you focus on licit pharmaceuticals and you say, we got to scale up PDMPs and make them national. So prescription drug monitoring programs. So we know where over-prescribing is coming from. We've got to empower justice departments and DEA to go after bad doctors, et cetera. We've been doing this. It's not super effective. Sometimes it has really terrible backfire effects because we take down doctors who are over-prescribing or just prescribing outlier amounts and we don't do anything for their patients and we send their patients into massive withdrawal. Some of them turn to the black market, some of them commit suicide. There are some real problems even with just our, our interdictionist philosophy when it comes to medicine, but also it's just radically incomplete. So what is it that we're doing there? 
Well, we're basically taking the model that we've been using on the illicit side, which is a war on drugs attitude. The focus on supply is a war on drugs philosophy. It is that we will solve this problem by going after the people who use drugs, the people who sell drugs. We just do supply interdiction on the illicit side, scale up law enforcement, militarize police, go after drug users, people who use drugs, people who sell drugs, cartels, and then we do it with doctors too. Here's the bioethicist answer to resource allocation at the beginning. We should invest almost none of the $100 billion in supply interdiction. It's not only not helpful, it's sometimes actively harmful. So we should do things like make sure that doctors are good responsible prescribers of controlled substances, because that's what it means to be a good clinician. And that was not part of a bunch of their training, but that's for good independent reasons that they need to know how to use medications. And then we should take the rest of that money and say, okay, what are the other components? And if we had started with supply, we've got good economics language here. So the flip side of that is demand. So here's an important question we should ask. Why do people use drugs? People use drugs for reasons. They're in pain. Some of that pain is physical. Some of it's psychic. Some of it's emotional. And they're self-medicating. Some people are bored. Some people don't have any hope. Poverty, joblessness, where is drug use especially endemic? It's in communities where a lot of these uh, features are prevalent. So the most recent drug crisis uh, is associated with Appalachia. Small towns that have had their economies decimated. So one thing that we could do is we should actually take care of people and this might reduce the reasons that they have to use drugs. So here's our huge upstream public health answer. And then I'll just quickly say the last few things because it's the long answer and you can, you can direct me afterwards. So we've had supply and demand, but even when you do that, that's only starting new people on using drugs, potentially a path to use disorder and overdose. So we have to take care of people who are currently using drugs. So we have to scale up addiction treatment. Why? Because something like 90% of people who, are, who have an active use disorder don't get access to specialty treatment. So this is a health condition for which we have a one out of 10 access ratio. We need a huge scale up. Now it's even worse because the facilities that we have spread across the country are not centrally regulated. And something like half of them do not offer the gold standard treatment, which is medication for opioid use disorder. So we have a lot of really, really bad, sometimes predatory addiction treatment facilities making up half of our woefully inadequate structure. So that's where a ton of the money goes. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. And then the last one is not everyone's gonna be ready to enter a treatment. So you scale up treatment, you slow down supply and demand, but there are a whole bunch of people who are just gonna keep using drugs because there are reasons to use drugs. And so what we really need is we need their drug use not to kill them until they're ready to enter treatment. And so that's harm reduction. We gotta scale up harm reduction. Those are the four pillars now aim me and we can keep chatting. <laughs> wow. I mean, some of, some of that stuff is just, maybe it's just a matter of my privilege or where I live or my experiences, but some of the stuff that you just mentioned is just mind-blowing. I read a book a couple of years ago called, I think it was called Dope Sick, about Appalachia and, like you said, the absolute decimation of these communities and their economies and almost like the entirety of their infrastructure because of addiction. I and mean, can you imagine if we had another health condition in which access was one out of 10. I mean, just pick it, like 
diabetes or you know types of cancer where only one out of 10 people who were suffering from this were able to get treatment and only half of those were able to get treatment that was actually the standard of care it's mind-blowing truly yeah i mean this is the sort of thing where somebody says how in the world could we possibly need a hundred billion dollars just to start it's because we've never taken this seriously so there have been experts calling for a hundred billion dollars for at least five years and our annual allocation for you know addressing the opioid crisis is very often something like $4 billion. I mean, it's just drops in the bucket. Do you think, Travis, it's because it's just not a very sympathetic population? You know, people who are dying of cancer are easy to sympathize with. People who are actively using drugs that could kill them, we just tend to not have as much sympathy for them. Yeah, I mean, I think let's make sure we use the word it's stigma, right? Yeah. So why do we not have sympathy with this population? Because drug use and use disorder is incredibly stigmatized in our culture. And so a big part of the kind of philosophical side of the bioethics work to be done here is to think about the nature of drug use and its value, to think about concepts of addiction, what it means to have your, your brain, your mind, your identity go from being one thing, which is non-addicted to addicted. So there, there are some philosophers like my colleague, Hannah Pickard, who, whose careers are dedicated to figuring out like what this means to be addicted. And it's really important work for destigmatizing and understanding what it's like so one of the things I tell all my students when I do course sections on this is we all use drugs. And it's just that some of us are really lucky that the drugs we use don't carry a lot of stigma. And so my drug of choice, well, I have several of them, but one of my drugs of choice that's closest to being stigmatized is alcohol. But of course, it's legal. And it's not even just not stigmatized for the most part it's actively kind of promoted. And so I'm like really interested in cocktails, like fancy cocktails. And that's got like class and social clout. You can get like serious cred for being good and knowledgeable about cocktails. And here's the thing that I want everyone to wrap their minds around. There is nothing in principle different from that than being super into heroin. There's an experience to be had there that you're seeking. There are different, if you're into opioids in general, you know the difference in feel and taste and experience between hydromorphone and heroin and fentanyl. You can be a connoisseur of a drug and we feel really comfortable being wine connoisseurs and cocktail connoisseurs. And then we immediately talk down to people who are super into heroin, for instance, because it's an illicit street opioid. It's been interesting to watch that shift. What you mentioned really resonates is true for me. So in Michigan, where I live, uh, cannabis was legalized for recreational use. Uh, I think it's probably almost two years ago now. And almost every other billboard on the highway is uh, the new state flower of Michigan, you know, all of these like dispensary advertisings. And it's been interesting to watch the shift in the way in which recreational marijuana use has shifted kind of along those same lines where people are super into certain strains and hybrids and mixtures of, of different, I don't know very much about it, but, and so I, I wonder if the legalization movement were to catch on for other types of drugs, whether it's, you know, psychedelics and psilocybin or more recreational drugs like, I don't know, ketamine or heroin, that, like you said, you could be a connoisseur, an aficionado of, of whatever particular type of drug your choice might be. Like caffeine is the same way, right? So coffee, like some people are super bougie about coffee. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So I will mention that Carl Hart, uh, who's a professor at Columbia, a neuroscientist, has recently 
become famous slash controversial for this sort of thing. So he actually advocates for legalization of all drugs. Um, it's a very sort of libertarian argument in his case. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of kind of constitutionalism in the sense that one should have the right to experiment with their body and expand their mind in various ways. And I will say that I'm not a fan of a lot of those arguments because in general, I don't think it sufficiently wrestles with the tension between public health promotion and respecting individual rights to access certain goods. And so there's a serious, serious question that we quickly get to here, which is whether legalization is the right sort of policy to promote various goods. Because on the one hand, it was absolutely mind-blowing that cannabis was illegal while alcohol and tobacco are illegal. Alcohol and tobacco are just far more dangerous than cannabis is on any reasonable understanding of danger. And so there feels like a kind of consistency reckoning here. And then you can kind of keep running that out and say, well, most of the harms of the drugs that I'm focused on that are causing the overdose epidemic, so these are opioids, benzodiazepines, stimulants, right? They would be much, much safer if you legalize and regulate them. This is part of Hart's argument, right? So you do what you, we did with cannabis. You make them part of the marketplace, and then we actually regulate access to them. And so you know what you're getting, you can properly dose, et cetera. Now that probably would drop overdose because most overdoses are accidental due to an impure black market. The problem is I don't actually think we want a society in which you can access every dangerous good that humans can create. I think that the reason we give clinicians DEA cards, you know, the reason that they're, they have prescriptive authority and serve as gatekeepers for us is because all societies, it turns out, we're not unique recognize that there's a huge public health cost to just unrestricted access of full information consenting adults for various dangerous um, content, various dangerous substances. So this is a huge, meaty, philosophical, bioethics and health policy question, which is something like, what is the correct high policy decision for making drug use safest? And I think we have to find a way to kind of walk this razor thin line of making the drugs the safest. So illicit market is terrible, right? That's what's causing so many deaths, but also making it really hard to access substances that can kill you with a single dose, which is what opioids, benzodiazepines, combinations with alcohol, et cetera, can do. So yeah, this is not easy stuff. One thing I have heard you try to explain is how you would talk about this even with your children. And so how would you talk about drug use and stigma and appropriate sort of mentalities about drugs with your own children? Yeah, this is such a good question. So I have a seven-year-old daughter, and so this is not just theoretical. And my partner and I are very on the same page that, you know, there are all these good moral reasons for harm reduction, which is part of what we kind of alluded to, but I've done work on also. And the basic idea here is when there are risky activities that people will engage in, regardless of the risk, you, you have a decision to make as, you know, sort of policymakers or parents, which is you can either try to prevent them from accessing those activities, or you can make them as safe as possible. And so the harm reduction approach is to make them as safe as possible. The other approach we're really familiar with, which is these are abstinence only approaches. 
And so harm reduction does not fit only in, say, the drug conversation. There are very uncontroversial places for it, like seatbelts and airbags in cars. But then there are also similarly controversial places, which is sexual education for minors, for instance. Um, so here's what I know about the way that I will continue to raise my daughter, seven, we haven't had these conversations yet, but um, when she's interested in sex, there will not be an abstinence only focus. There'll be a focus on education, lots of discussion of enthusiastic ongoing consents about contraception, about staying safe. And this is the same model that I'll be using when it comes to drugs. Because of our current criminalization of drugs in the highly contaminated black market, I will desperately hope that she's never interested in trying, say, cocaine or methamphetamines or heroin, because they are so incredibly risky right now. If you try to buy heroin on the street, you will not get heroin. You'll get almost pure fentanyl, no matter where, you, where you're trying to, to buy it. And that's incredibly difficult to dose. And so I want her to know that this is one of the most costly, risky things that she can do. And, and her dad, as an expert, would never want her to try this. But if she ever tries any of these things, she cannot do it alone. Using drugs alone is the most dangerous thing that you can do. So you do it with other people. You do it with people who are carrying naloxones, especially with opioids being such a dangerous part of our drug supply. We have an overdose reversal drug. It's basically magic. The fact that we don't have all of our teenagers and all of us just constantly walking around with two doses of, of naloxone blows my mind. No side effects. And you can reverse someone who's in an active overdose with just five minutes of training. So yeah, so don't use alone, uh, use with other people. Don't be afraid to call the police. Don't be afraid to call EMS. Make sure you know the status of any good Samaritan laws. Like I am much more comfortable with the idea that she will try some drugs, even if I'm not a fan, right? So I'm not a, a huge fan of anything that's coming from the illicit market. But if she were to buy cannabis illegally rather than a state where it's legally available, I wouldn't be as concerned, but I would have the same sorts of, you know, make sure you're safe, make sure with other people, it's not just you and another person, you know, you and a man alone somewhere. But I would be more concerned if she ever wanted to try some of these dangerous drugs. And yet I want her to have all the information to, to keep herself as safe as possible. Good. Well, Travis, we're so grateful that you were here with us today to explain all that. Can you describe or tell us about, or at least just name your book and we'll link it on the website so that everybody can have a chance to access it. Sure. Yeah. So my book is called In Pain, A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids. It was published with HarperCollins in 2019. You know, an interesting part of my life is that I chose to publish this book, not as an academic book, right? This is not an Oxford University or a Rutledge sort of book, right? Um, I published with HarperCollins because I wanted it to be read by uh, physicians and, and nurses and pharmacists, but also, you know, patients and family members, people who have loved ones who are struggling with use disorder, who have lost someone to use disorder and are, are struggling to figure out how to make meaning and, and do activist work. And so, yeah, over the last several years, you know, I've done not only like the bookstore tours and the library readings, but I've also gone to recovery meetings and talked with folks who are in recovery themselves, who are parents of, of children lost to overdose. And so the book is, is not your standard academic bioethicist text. It's meant to, I mean, this was mission work, right? It was, the goal was to make a difference. So all that to say, 
if anybody has interest, I hope they read it regardless of how nerdy they identify. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This was great. For more information about today's episode, show notes, and links to articles and topics discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstall for all the podcast-related artwork, and Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here. How did how did this start? I mean, because you two are not at the same place, right? So how did, how did you get connected? And, I mean, was this like grant funded initially? Oh, we wish. Oh God, I wish. <laughs>